Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Biggest political story of the week, Joe Biden has now been inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. In his inaugural address, he stressed the message of unity, calling for an end to the uncivil war pitting the left against the right. As president of the Senate, Vice President Kamala Harris swore in new Democratic senators, and former President Trump left town early, saying he would be back again soon in some form. For a rundown of how the day played out, we'll speak to Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. So I think the message of unity was really one of the key takeaways. This has been something that Joe Biden has been pledging for a while. And I think it was obviously very important for him to pledge it today while he was surrounded on that balcony on Capitol Hill with Republicans and Democrats, lawmakers, former lawmakers, former vice presidents, former presidents. It was a moment for unity. And I think what was demonstrated today showed unity at the top levels of U.S. government. And he wanted to reflect that in his address. One particular part of his address that I thought was very striking, and he said similar things like this before, but he made a direct appeal to President Trump's supporters. And he essentially said, hear me out. Listen to what I have to say. I am reaching out to you. I am trying to make this country better for you. I'm not only trying to make this country better for my own voters, but also for people who didn't vote for me. And he said, even if you continue to disagree with me, that's okay. That's democracy. That's normal. So I thought that was definitely the right tone to set, especially after the violence we saw that broke out on Capitol Hill just weeks ago. And that also figured into his speech, too. He obviously made mention of it. He said, we must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue. We can see each other, not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. No progress, only exhausting outrage. No nation, only a state of chaos. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge and unity is the path forward. And we must meet this moment as the United States of America. If we do that, I guarantee you we will not fail. We have never, ever, ever, ever failed in America. When we've acted together. And there's a lot of rhetoric that goes on in these types of addresses. And I really do hope that, you know, supporters of President Trump, even those that rioted at the Capitol, hear that message. You know, he can only say (laughs) what he intends to do and people need to be open to listening to that. He also uh, kind of a message to those outside of the country, our allies saying we were going to rebuild those relationships, things like that. So just setting the stage for what happened after the parade and all that, Joe Biden went to the Oval Office and signed over a dozen executive orders. So we'll see how all that pans out. Obviously, Vice President Kamala Harris making history as well as the first woman to hold that office, the first black and South Asian American woman to hold that office. Also, you know, she had to go into the Senate as president of the Senate and swear in some new Democratic senators. 
absolutely in that moment with her swearing in the Democratic senators was so incredibly historic as well. So you have the first woman, the first black, the first South Asian vice president there swearing in the first Jewish millennial senator from Georgia, the first black senator from Georgia. And then you have the first Latino senator from California. So that was a really big moment and a lot of history in that moment. And I think it just really encapsulates how much of a melting pot America is and how much we're seeing that melting pot and that diversity now really trickle up to the top tier of government. You know, it's so interesting as a woman watching today, I couldn't help but think about how there are younger generations of younger girls and future generations of younger girls who will not know a world without a woman vice president or a world where there hasn't been a woman vice president. That's huge. And I think it really shows how much progress we've made as a country and really how much progress women and minorities have made really going forward in elected office. And as the tiebreaker in the Senate right now, since it's split 50-50, I mean, she might remain a fixture there on the Senate floor, you know, breaking tie votes and all that, you know, depending on the agenda that starts getting passed. So definitely some more historic moments there. And then finally, Julia, President Trump didn't go to the inauguration. He chose instead to leave early in the morning. He did stop and talk to some supporters that he had uh, at Joint Base Andrews just kind of touting some of his accomplishments. He had kind of a little weird send off at the end saying, we'll be back in some form, have a good life. (laughs) That that was kind of a weird little send off there. But, you know, what did President Trump say at the end of his term there? President Trump was really trying to tout his accomplishments. Um, He talked a lot about his family, thanked his supporters and such, really made it about him and what he's done. It was interesting to see how it looked like almost like a mini Trump rally came off of Marine One with the First Lady and there was music playing and we know that's par for the course for a Trump rally. So it just seemed to be a mini Trump rally. One notable thing is that he did not mention President Biden's name. He said he wished the new administration well, but that's all we got from him. However, we did learn that he continued the tradition of leaving a note to the next president in the Oval Office. And we just heard Joe Biden, who is in the Oval Office at this very moment, signing executive orders, saying he thought the letter was, quote unquote, very generous. And he said that he would not be revealing the contents of the letter until potentially after he speaks with President Trump. So we weren't expecting to see that letter but we learned it happened. Oh, man, that's what I want to know. What's in that letter? You know, it was such a contentious election, obviously going to the end where President Trump was saying it was stolen from him. Definitely very, very curious to see what goes on in there. Well, Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Also big news leading up to President Trump leaving office, all eyes were on the pardons he was going to issue. He ended up granting clemency to 143 people, 73 pardons, and 70 commutations. Most notably, people that did not make the list were President Trump himself, his family members, Rudy Giuliani, or Tiger King Joe Exotic. Names that did stand out, though, included Steve Bannon and rapper Lil Wayne. For more on who got the last of the Trump pardons, we'll speak to Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs correspondent at Politico. I would say that they were not as provocative, as sort of earth shattering as some people thought was possible. Obviously, if 
Trump had decided to try to pardon himself, that would be something completely unprecedented in American history, and it would have provoked legal challenges. Some people said he thought it might have intensified federal investigations into the president. President Richard Nixon actually considered a self-pardon, but decided to leave the White House uh, without granting that to himself and later got a pardon from uh, President Ford, of course. But as you say, probably of the pardons that were issued, Steve Bannon, probably the most noteworthy and provocative. Steve Bannon was founder, editor of the Breitbart website, then went on to be a key strategist, maybe the central strategist of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, and then a a top advisor in the White House before falling out with the president about a year or so over there at the White House. So he had continued to be a supporter of President Trump, had backed a lot of the talk about election fraud in the 2020 vote, the kind of things that the president has been advancing for the last couple of months that don't seem to have a lot of factual foundation to them. That may have been in part to get back into Trump's good graces. The reason it was so important for Bannon is that he's facing a federal prosecution along with three other men for fraud in connection with private fundraising for construction of a border wall, you know, along the U.S. border with Mexico. Prosecutors in New York got an indictment of him and these others saying that they lied about various aspects of their fundraising and that they diverted funds to obviously personal use and luxury. You mentioned in your article that the pardon of Bannon may have an unintended effect on his upcoming impeachment trial. How do you see that going? And this may also play into why the president didn't pardon himself, didn't pardon his family members, didn't pardon Rudy Giuliani. You know, if the president had simply left office and didn't have anything hanging over his head, he might have felt a lot more latitude, a lot more flexibility and freedom to do as he saw fit on these pardons and perhaps grant more of them more widely. But even this pardon to Bannon, Bannon, as I said, was involved in the movement to put forward these ideas of election fraud. He encouraged people to go to the January 6th rally at the Capitol. He claims that he didn't incite any violence, but he was talking about revolution and telling people how important it was to be down there and that something very, very major was going to happen. So he was certainly fanning the flames of what would eventually happen there, the embers of what led to flames essentially at the Capitol, whether he would be legally liable for that, I don't know. But some senators might find it provocative that President Trump decided to pardon Bannon on his way out the door. On the other hand, I think it's not as provocative as it would have been to grant pardon to himself, to grant pardons, for example, to the rioters. We have more than 100 people now facing federal criminal charges that range from sort of trespassing to assault on police officers to obstruction of Congress. And the president could have sought to pardon all those people. And some of those people had specifically asked him for pardons. And there was nothing like that on the final list of 143 that you mentioned. What are some of the other significant names we might know? You know, I, looking through the list, I saw a lot of uh, financial corruption crimes, more so than anything else, I think. Those, I think, were the ones who got the most attention. There are dozens in here of ordinary folks that had cases relating to drug trafficking, the drug trade, uh, who had very, very long sentences under the drug laws that were put into effect in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, often sentences of a couple decades or more. So the president did do some of those, but he did far, far fewer than President Barack Obama did. I think Obama did about 1,500 or so of those commutations. There were pardons in here 
a commutation for Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick of Detroit, who was serving a 28-year corruption sentence. There were pardons that sort of cleared the record of some of Trump's supporters, former uh, Congressman Rick Renzi of Arizona and Duke Cunningham of California, and then some more obscure figures, or at least people that are not in the news all the time, a professional gambler, and I think former professional golfer by the name of Billy Walters got a commutation. And even one of the figures in this Varsity Blues investigation, which is the one into corruption in the college admissions process, kind of surprising. Many, many defendants there, dozens of people, Lori Laughlin, people may have heard about the case against her, a lot of other prominent folks who had a lot of cash and were willing to throw it around to get their kids into college in what the prosecutors say was an illegal way. One Miami developer, I don't know if he's a friend of Trump or what the exact connection was, but he got a pardon and uh, he hadn't even gone to trial yet. So some of these acts of clemency can be very significant. Obviously, if someone's serving a lengthy sentence or facing a potential lengthy sentence and the president wipes it out, cuts it short, that is a major, major deal. In other instances, you do have the more benign kind of pardon, I would say, which is someone who may have served their sentence decades ago wants to clear their record or maybe wants to go into some kind of business where they can't have a criminal record. So it's really a mix of decisions that went way into the late night hours on Tuesday into Wednesday. It's funny. I think the biggest snub, only because they had been pushing for it so much, was probably Tiger King Joe Exotic did not get the pardon he was expecting. But it's a long list, a lot of names on there. As we mentioned, though, Steve Bannon probably right up at the top there. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs contributor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to do it, Oscar. Take care. Once Joe Biden got sworn into the presidency, there was a lot on his plate to do. The first days of the Biden administration will be packed with dealing with the pandemic and trying to administer 100 million vaccine doses in 100 days. They'll also try to pass another COVID relief package and sign executive orders such as getting back into the Paris Agreement on climate change and ending the emergency declaration at the southern border. For more on what to expect from Biden's first 100 days, we'll speak to Laura Egan, digital White House reporter at NBC News. There's kind of four categories that are going to define the first 100 days of Biden's administration. Uh, You touched on a few of them. The first one is the coronavirus pandemic. He has this huge COVID bill that he's going to be working to get through Congress. And wrapped up in that, you know, is his push for 100 million vaccines in the first 100 days, more stimulus money, more unemployment money. And then you have his day one executive orders that he's talked about. And that's going to, we're going to start seeing that, you know, as soon as just hours after he is sworn in. A lot of that is going to be kind of to indicate a shift from the Trump administration. So really focused at rolling back some of the policies we saw under Trump, such as rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, ending the crisis at the border, rolling back some of the rollbacks Trump did on Obama environmental executive orders. And then you're going to see also kind of, I think, a surprise for some to see that Biden included in his first 100-day plans a big push for immigration. I think every four years, we kind of, you know, talk about immigration reform and a big overhaul to our immigration system. And it always kind of ends up falling flat on Capitol Hill. But Biden has said that he is going to introduce, starting on the day he's inaugurated, introduce a bill to Congress that would find a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people who are in the country who are on, undocumented. And that's the biggest kind of push we've seen for pathway to citizenship really since Reagan was president. And then, of course, you know, hanging over all of this is impeachment. And that's really going to dictate a lot of what can happen 
on the Hill just because it's going to take up and kind of consume so much of Congress's time. And also keep in mind going on on with all of this is Biden's need to confirm his cabinet members, which right. also eats up a chunk of time in the Senate. Let's continue to expand a, a little bit there on the Senate's actions. You know, they're going to be super important. All of this, the split is 50-50 Democrats to Republicans. So Vice President Kamala Harris is going to probably be a, a big fixture there, you know, maybe tie-breaking votes and whatnot. But yeah, definitely kind of splitting their time. I think Joe Biden said, can we do something? We're doing a half day on impeachment, half day on cabinet picks, because that's crucial. He needs to set up his cabinet so he can really start implementing his agenda. So that's going to be one of the first big steps. And, and you know, the question is, is, you know, how much bipartisanship are we going to be seeing when they're split 50-50 like that? That's right. You know, we're already starting to hear some pushback. Senator Hawley came out today pushing back against Biden's immigration plan. So he really doesn't have a whole lot of wiggle room right now, just because, you know, even in the House, the margin is so razor thin for Democrats that they just can't afford to lose anyone that might be kind of more on on the margins right there. And yeah, the Biden administration, you know, he has indicated that he wants to split his time 50-50, as you said, with cabinet and impeachment. But then that leaves a big question, where's time for all these other bills? Yeah. Biden has a plan to administer 100 million COVID-19 vaccinations in the first 100 days. Uh, we've already seen how slow the rollout is for that. We have about 11 million doses that have been given so far, you know, maybe a little more, the numbers change uh, every day, but uh, mm -hmm. th that's going to be supremely important and very difficult. You know, he's asking for a lot of money for that, billions of dollars to go towards vaccination programs, testing, all of this stuff. And, you know, the Biden administration has, or they've been very critical so far of how the Trump administration set up their vaccine rollout. They're already planning to, you know, kind of just do an overhaul of, of what Trump, infrastructure Trump had in, even renaming Operation Warp Speed, um, renaming that whole program. We don't know the name of that yet, but I you know, anticipate they'll be announcing that soon. So, you know, they really are going to take a more federal approach to it. The Trump administration kind of left this up to the state. Biden has made clear that that is not the direction that he intends to go in. But, you know, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's a huge, huge task yeah. to undertake. And they're going to be, I think they got, you know, a little bit of a slower start than they would have liked just through the transition process and not getting some of the information from the Trump White House that they wanted early on in that process. So um, that's definitely going to be something that we're going to be keeping a close eye on. And the work on the economy, as we mentioned, everybody can agree that we need to get back on track with that. That's going to be a tough sell, too. The He wants a relief package that's over a trillion dollars. You know, more direct payments to people. I think he wants $1,400, $400 a week in unemployment, increasing the minimum wage to $15. That's going to be tough. So there's a lot of work to get to and uh, not much time. So we'll see how much they go. And as you mentioned earlier, too, you know, nobody would have thought maybe immigration would be at the top, but at least it signals what his priorities are. So lots of stuff to get through. And uh, we'll see how, how much of this gets implemented. Lauren Egan, digital White House reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.